Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money for my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match with you great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. I use Anchor in a simple matter. I take my podcast episodes, edit them in Premiere, upload them to Anchor and schedule them and set my tags and my description, all that good stuff. Just sit back and let it distribute to all the platforms. It's very simple and very easy to use and very user-friendly. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast, make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. That's anchor.fm slash start to join me and a diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Let's go. This is the Chase in the Frame podcast, where we interview people in the TV and film industry, talking about their journey, how they got to where they are today. We do this podcast for the frame chasers. This is for those in the film industry, going hard, let them know who we are. Frame chasers, we're, we're not chasing the fame, no, no. Tell them what we do. Chasing the Frame. This is the Chasing the Frame podcast with your host, John DeMarco. Let's go. What up, Frame Chasers? It's Wednesday, and you already know what it is. A new episode of Chasing the Frame. Today is episode 70, and today I'm with Zach Lepofsky, producer, writer, uh, and director as well. If you didn't know who Zach is, now you will know. He was on a show called On the Lot. Uh, It was a Steven Spielberg show back in 2007. It was a reality show, it was a directing competition reality show, directing reality show competition. Uh, he placed fifth out of 12,000 directors. Uh, Zach also, I was reading some bios, so I'm kind of going to paraphrase a little bit too. Zach uh, has worked on shows like Mech X4, which he actually got nominated for a Daytime Emmy, if I'm mistaken. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> as well as he works for uh, companies like Lionsgate, Sci-Fi, Legendary, and like I said, Disney as well. Yeah, his first feature uh, was Freaks, and it was the biggest uh, Canadian, was the biggest Canadian sale of TIFF 18, and had the widest uh, and the widest opening of any Canadian film in 2019. And at the moment, Zach is uh, working on projects for Disney Plus and Universal Pictures. And also, guys, Zach also was the brains behind an awesome app, which I highly recommend, called Shotlister. And every production should be using it. And it's awesome. Highly recommend. It's on my, and I froze apparently, and this is what's happening in my life with technology today. Uh, <laughs> but before we get into the show real quick, I just want to give a real quick housekeeping thing because that's what we have to do here. We have to try to get some bills paid. Uh, first off, we have to thank Artlist.io, our affiliate partner. Honestly, the best music licensing platform for any type of content creator. Thousands of new songs every day and unlimited downloads, which is always a plus when you're trying to find music for a project. That's always the hardest part. Artlist.io makes it easy uh, for uh, you guys to find, you know, music. You can find music for anything, honestly. And if you sign up today in our link below, you can get a year and two extra months free. So check out Artlist.io, an inspiring music licensing platform created by filmmakers for filmmakers. Second, guys, 
We have merch at teespring.com slash store slash chasing dash the dash frame. Not only are we selling shirts, but we're selling frame chaser masks for $10. Honestly, it's a very comfy, comfy cloth mask and super stylish to let people know that you're a frame chaser on set. Third, we have affiliate partnership with uh, Production Apparel as well, which has awesome production shirts for camera and sound, also writers as well. And they have wrap gifts uh, that you can buy as well in bulk, if I'm, um, and you can find that in our description as well. And fourth, guys, we have to ask now for the donations to the Church of the Frame. Three ways to donate. PayPal.me slash podcast, a one-time donation. Two, Patreon, $5 a month membership, which gives you early access to audio and visual content a week before it airs. And three, in the description below are links to our cryptocurrencies that are that go straight to our trust wallet, and that's helping us fund our projects uh, in the future. And last but not least, please like our Facebook page as well as subscribe to our YouTube page as well. Uh, and also hit that notification button on the top. So let's get into the show. Who's ready to chase frames today? Uh, Zach, first question I have for everyone on the show is, where are you from originally? Um, I grew up in Vancouver, well, just outside of Vancouver, BC, on a small island. <laughs> uh, and um, eventually, when I was a young kid, my mom moved into Vancouver itself, and, which is a city on the west coast of Canada. And I uh, grew up here um, actually as an actor. I was an actor on my mom. Gave up being a hippie in the islands and mm. came to the big city to be a TV producer. And I grew up on sets either as an actor or just hanging out with her while she was making stuff. And grew up in the Vancouver scene. And, and now I kind of split my time between LA and Vancouver. Nice. And then the second question I always ask everyone is what was that, you know, director, movie, TV show, actor, actress, whatever it was that inspired you to do what you wanted to do? It sounds like your mom, but I don't want to assume anything. <laughs> um... In some ways, yes. I mean, I think my mom was always uh, and still is a huge um, supporter of mine. And, and unlike a lot of my friends, you know, she was always encouraging me to pursue film um, from you know when I was five years old. Um, so I always had her support. I think the big turning point for me was um, a, a director friend of hers that she was working with said, "Oh, there's this new movie. You got to check it out. You got to take Zach. It's it's incredible. Mm. It's game changing." And she took me to see Jurassic Park, but I was only 10 years old. <laughs> and so she, she thought, oh, nice dinosaurs, this will be fun, family yeah. movie. And then I'd only ever seen, like, kids' movies before that. So I was incredibly traumatized seeing <laughs> Jurassic, Jurassic Park in theaters, you know, thinking and starting off thinking I was going to be eaten alive in the theater. And by the end of the film, you know, finally realizing that it was just fake and, and it was supposed to be fun and that I mm. survived and... And Jurassic Park kind of and Steven Spielberg quickly became sort of my my main inspiration and, and uh, still is to this day. Did you read the book at all after seeing the movie later on in life? I haven't. No. Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, I'm a huge fan of, of Michael Crichton, but um, I haven't read the books. Um, I've I've really just been a cinephile my whole life. Mm. You know, people make fun of me because I'm. I don't follow much to do with music. I don't yeah. follow much to do with books. I don't follow much to do with about anything other than movie. <laughs> I I'm the same way because if everyone who comes over to the house to like do the podcast or any friend, they just look at my movie collection. And they go, "Holy shit, you have how many movies?" And it's mostly like <laughs> obscure movies or like some random ones. That, and then I'm big on the Criterion collection as well. I love that yeah. collection. Um, okay, so at ten years old, you see Jurassic Park. And is that when you really get the bug also to really start pursuing it as well? Yeah. So I sort of was 
you know, I'm, I was born in 84, so mm. by the time I was 10 years old, it was, you know, in the sort of mid-90s. And um, really what was possible then with computers and video cameras was just starting to become digital. Um, and as I kind of grew up, I was lucky enough because I was acting to have access to sort of the very earliest digital cameras and very earliest, you know, digital editing stuff. You know, at first I was just doing stop motion because that's all that computers could handle at the time and eventually getting, you know, the first mini DV camera and stuff mm. like that. So I was really making, um, you know, shorts with my friends and editing them on a computer really at the very moment that that was just becoming possible. Yeah. Um, what was what, what what editing software were you using at the time? Like, um, well, there's a few you know terrible ones before <laughs> Final Cut really came out. Um, but kind of the, the real breakthrough moment for me was like Final Cut One. Okay. And just sort of you know that came out when I was in in like grade ten, grade yeah. nine, grade ten in high school. So I was the only you know the only person in the school that knew how to even use that software. Um, but very quickly, you know, that kind of was a game changer. And for me, you know, it was interesting because the way that sort of the game changed so quickly when digital video really hit around mm -hmm. then, around the year 2000, was I was starting to very quickly discover the indie community that was in Vancouver. And there were a lot of filmmakers that were a lot older than me because right. I was still in high school. But we had all had the same amount of time with the equipment because, and in some cases, I had more because I was a high school student, so I didn't have a day job or mm. have to worry about any type of responsibility. So I was able yeah. to spend every minute learning about it. And so I was working with a lot of people that had gone to university or gone to film school and, and then realized now the technology was finally in a way that they could just buy it themselves and, and make their own stuff. So I started working with tons of people in the indie community and I learned a lot about doing visual effects and editing, so I was just like doing a lot of that for other people as well. A uh, question about the indie community, real quickly, in, Van in Vancouver, um, especially like knowing what it's doing now. What was it like back then? Because you know, me growing up in general, like you know, you always hear LA or New York and, so and those places, and then you hear now, like now, more you know, when I'm in my twenties in the late two thousands, I would say in two thousand ten, I heard more about Vancouver. Um, Montreal, I believe, as well, and Toronto were really yeah. growing as well. What was it like in those days when you were, um, you know, in the indie scene there? Yeah, I mean, Vancouver has really become, on the kind of professional industry side, one of the major powerhouses in the world. Mm. And I think right now, because of COVID, it's the largest, largest production center in North America. Yeah. Um, we broke all-time records this year for um, simultaneous productions of, of any time. Mm -hmm. Um, once stuff reopened, and the back then it was really interesting because Vancouver's always had this massive um, Hollywood-driven scene with huge productions and tons of TV shows, um, and a lot of Canadians working on those shows. But they're all really eager to give back um, to the indie kind of um, side of things, and so um, it's from what I hear compared to a lot of other places. Um, it's much easier to get stuff for free on the indie side because all of the vendors, all of the filmmakers, all of the ADs, all of the camera people, they're yeah. all making lots and lots of money on the big stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, and they, and they really want to give back to the locals. And so when you're an indie filmmaker coming up, especially back then, um, you could just 
you know, you could get 18 Ks for a case of beer and you, know, <laughs> you could get all sorts of stuff. Um, <laughs> Holy shit. And really just kind of, you know, you could get just so, so many resources um, and because people just wanted to kind of nurture the local side of stuff. Um, eventually you hit a ceiling and, and it comes time to kind of grow up and transition into the, the real industry. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as a, com- a community, it was really on fire because we really had tons of resources and yeah. lots of people willing who were working on huge shows to come out and work for free because they believed in, in their art. And so you were able to really make stuff that looked incredible. You just convinced me to move to Vancouver. So um, <laughs> I'm going to try to talk to my fiance right after this podcast and just move <laughs> there right now. Cause Sounds good. I think, I think you sold me. <laughs> you are the ambassador yeah. of, of film now. <laughs> um so yeah, like okay. So you were saying you were in tenth uh, grade, right? When you were doing the indie scene. Yeah, I mean, from you know when I was in tenth grade through to when I graduated, and then that on the lot thing with Steven Spielberg was sort of two or three years after high school. Oh wow! So you didn't go? Did you? I was that's what I was trying to get to next. Is like, did you go straight to college and then do on the lot, or was it like just you after high no, school? No, I. Yeah, I never did. Uh, post-secondary, mostly because I knew from a very young age exactly what I wanted to do, which was to, to make a film and, and be a director. Mm. Um, and I almost went to film school, uh, and I had a mentor of mine at the time, sort of, as I was asking her, like, where should I go and what should I do? And she basically pointed out that, like, I've been living on film sets for my whole life, and yeah. I've been already making movies by that point for 10 years. Like, I already knew everything I was going to learn from film school, and I already had a huge network one of the biggest things you get from film school is the, is the group of people you graduate with. Mm. Um, so she, and the ones I was looking at going were really expensive. So she just said, look, just save that money, just make movies, meet people, and it'll happen on its own because you've already learned you know, so many of the practical skills. And so that's what I did and just started volunteering. And my, <laughs> my mom basically let me uh, you know live at home and she basically said, I was going to support you for three years while you went to university. So instead... Just volunteer and make as many movies as you can on work on as many movies as you can for the next three years and that's what I did. That's that's awesome. That's a, that's yeah. an awesome mom. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, like oh, wow. Um so you're doing all that. Now you're you're volunteering, you're getting you're, your feet are wet already, but your feet are getting even like deeper in, into the pool, I'll say. And then yeah. how did you get onto on the lot? how that how that happened? Yeah, I mean uh it was it was huge news for everyone in the world who was in the side of making shorts at that time because when Steven Spielberg says, you know, he's going to open a competition up to anyone in the world to try and compete, you know, to make short films to at, and the prize is you get to work with him and you get a million dollars. I mean, pretty much every filmmaker I knew yeah. uh, answered that call. <laughs> and um, it was many, many different steps over like six years six months uh the first step was sending in a film you had made it had to be five minutes long i had a film i had just made that was 10 minutes long and it was actually a one take film it was a continuous 10 minute take oh wow and so i cut it down to <laughs> into a five minute version which was sort of that got me into the you know past round one yeah and there were many rounds you know they at one point they they called us on like a on a friday and said you need to deliver us an entire short film by next friday and here's a log line, just to see if you could make a short in a week. Because on the show, you had to make a short every week. Yeah. Um, and then based on that, you know, a certain amount of people got through to, to be interviewed. 
based on that, a certain amount of people got through yeah. to um, be on the sort of the audition episodes as you would on. It was based, it was modeled after American Idol because that was the yeah. show at the time. And uh, there was psychological testing. There was also there was wow. drug testing. There was all sorts of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> were Were you nervous at any time that you like you're like I'm not going to get this, or did you feel so confident that you're like I got this in the bag? Honestly, I felt pretty confident as a 22-year-old. You know, you've got that sort of like, yeah. I got this. You know, and I'd been making so many short films. And in Vancouver, and I think they were happening a lot, but in Vancouver, there was lots of 24-hour and 48-hour uh, competitions where you oh, had wow. to make a film in 24 hours mm-hmm. um, or, or or 48 hours, depending. And I had done a lot of those. So, like, making movies quickly was something I was really experienced with. But mm-hmm. I'd also grown up on sets a lot. And on, once you got into the show... For a lot of people, it was their first time with like a real crew of yeah. like forty people. You know, if you'd made a bunch of shorts with your friends and suddenly you had forty people there with professional IDs and, and DOPs, a lot of people didn't know what to do mm-hmm. um, with those people. Like it was overwhelming. Whereas I had kind of made lots of indie stuff and short films, but I'd also been on big sets as an actor, and so I was comfortable in that space. I have to ask. I have to go back a little bit uh, back to when you first went on those film sets too. I forgot to ask you this. What was it like, like, like going on a film set for the first time? Like, what were your emotions? What was going through your mind? Were you, how nervous were you? Were you nervous at all? Like, what was your well, whole it's range of emotions? For me because, like, I grew up with a, my mom. Yeah. As, my, me and my mom, a single mom, and and so being on on set was basically normal for me. It mm-hmm. wasn't something unique because, you know. It was basically where my mom worked, and yeah. I, from as as young as I can remember, I was on sets, and it was just something fun to do, and it was it was always way more fun than being at school. Okay. Um, so acting was a great outlet because you got to like leave school all the time and go and audition, and if you got a role, you got to leave school and go, you know, shoot something really fun. So for me, it was always just a really fun, exciting place to be, and um, and always that sense of family that's on set. And, yeah. And you know. And inspiring, seeing actual big directors work, and then going back and making my own little shorts. You know, mm-hmm. that that was always really inspiring. So I was really lucky as a kid because okay. I, I got exposed to that really early. Um, and now going back to on the lot. Now you go through you know, round. How many rounds were there to, before you got on the actual show? Like, cause you, it sounds like you know you said yeah, make it short in a week. Yeah, do psychological tests. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like yeah, like you know. Go fetch water and bring it back to like you know somewhere like yeah. magical. Like there, yeah, there was the, the there was sort of what they call the audition episodes, which were the top fifty. Yeah, um, and that was a three day marathon where I don't think we even really slept for three days, mm-hmm. and we had to do three or four different specific tests, um, all of which at this point was now being filmed for the show, and then uh, and then we knew that we had made the top twenty, which is where the real show would basically begin. But there was like a two or three month delay between the audition and the actual beginning of, of the show. Because unlike The Apprentice or other shows like that, this was actually going to be live. Um, just like um, American Idol, which was kind of crazy. So we would literally, once the show began, you know, we would have six days to write, shoot, direct, and edit uh, a movie that then you know, tens of millions of people would vote on. And then if, if it was... If it was bad, you would go home, and if it was good, you would stay to the next week and do it all over again. Yeah. Um, and you know, so we, I think there was really the audition episodes, and then a big break, and then we we launched into it in the summer of two thousand seven. I, you know, it's, it's it's sad. It's sad in the sense I never watched the show, and I I wish I did now, 
because I, like it was something like you know what was it? It was in 2007, so I'm trying to like, think back. 30, I was 23 maybe, maybe I don't, I don't even know how old I was. Maybe wait, no, 2007, fucking 17, 18, and I can't even. Fucking math terrible. Um, yeah, I just didn't give a shit about like watching TV. I just wanted to hang out with friends. It was, I think, it like close to the sure. summer, so I was just like, whatever. Well, it's a funny thing that um, the funny thing that I've noticed that's just started to happen because um, it's been, I guess, thirteen years since mm-hmm. it was on, on. And most people, you know, don't know about it. But you know, my last film, Freaks, which was doing the film festival route, yeah, um, last year. Like people were starting to come up to me that had watched it as a teenager, mm. and they were like, "Oh my god!" Like watching you, and, and I made that film, yeah. Freaks, with my friend Adam, who I met on that show. He was another yeah. contestant, and um, and then we've just started, to, just in the last like, year or so, started to meet executives who work at studios who are in their sort of late twenties, who who watch the show as as teenagers, <laughs> 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 and so it's and, and so that's always because most of the executives had seen it and yeah. now we're just starting to see the this younger round of executives that well, were like fans of the show when they were young which is kind of awesome yeah i was gonna say what's that like that must be like really like m- like kind of mind-blowing too at the same time we're like wait you remember that show like <laughs> <laughs> what's well, great because they're you know t- they're fans of, of, yeah. of watching us so it always helps you know the meeting go go better yeah exactly uh what was well how did how did life go for you after obviously it went great for you but, like, what happened after the show for you, you know, in the sense, like, yeah. what, what, did you and get, I, like, work right away, or was it more like, all right, I just to do my own thing and find my own way? Yeah, I mean, it was um, a really crazy time while the show was happening, and, and everyone's like, oh, my God, you're going to be directing, like, $100 million movies in six months, and, like, you're the talk of the town, and, you know, because it was, it was a really crazy moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good thing that came out of it is, is I was able to get an agent which is really you know, one of the toughest things to do. Um, but the summer of 2007 was also when the writer strike began. Yeah. Um, so basically Hollywood shut down for like um, a year, and then in 2008 the recession hit, <laughs> and the economy shut down, and most movies at the time were being financed by Wall Street, and you know, Wall Street collapsed. Mm. So basically the film industry um, hit a brick wall right as I had my biggest break. Um, and I didn't actually like get onto another film set for I think it was like four or five years. Wow. Um, and did a lot of pitching, did a lot of writing, did a lot of um, doing some development and stuff like that. I was also doing a lot of commercials and, uh, you know, just anything I could do to kind of, um, I promised myself when I did on the lot that before that I was basically making a living doing editing and visual effects and mm-hmm. that type of stuff. And after that, when that happened, I promised myself I would never take a job unless it was as a director. Yeah. Even, um, like, I would just say, and so for a year and a half, I was saying no to editing jobs. Yeah. Just to, like, only be focused on that. Because I was a young kid. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any big expenses or any one depending on So, um, and it took about four or five years and a lot of humility. And eventually, like, I finally got my first job, which was um, directing like a cheesy monster movie for the sci-fi channel. Um, but, you know, they were going to pay me 40 grand and I was 40 grand in debt. And <laughs> it sounded like, it out. sounded like a great, and, uh, and from there, you know, led to the next movie in some way, you know, it kind of slowly grew bigger and bigger from there. Uh, also a question on top of that too. Um, did you, were you now from on the lot, did you stay in LA 
or were you going back to Vancouver? Yeah, so I I was living in Vancouver for a while, then eventually I moved down to LA, um, and was you know because I figured maybe the reason I was struggling was because I was in Vancouver and continued to struggle in LA, and you know it's really exciting in LA. You meet ton, you know you're walking onto the movie studios that mm. you've always dreamed of, and you're meeting with people that you know, work at Universal Studios mm. or Paramount or whatever. Um, and lots of almost opportunities, but nothing eventually happened. And ultimately, that first job came from someone that was, um, it was sort of a combo. Basically, there was a producer in L.A. and a producer in Vancouver that were making this movie together. And the Vancouver producer suggested my name because they remembered me from the show. Mm. And the L.A. producer, you know, I, I went and had lunch with her and uh, really, really, really prepared and had tons of passion and and even though I hadn't made a feature before or a feature-length movie before, I was able to convince her, and um, and I, I'm still really close friends with her to this day. Um, and and uh, she gave me my shot. You know, it's, yeah. it's tough, because in the film industry, there's so many people that want those jobs. At a certain point, someone needs to believe in you. Um, yeah. And to, to, to let you do something you've never done before, because most of the film industry only wants to hire people that have done exactly the job that they have again. Um, and so you find those people once in a while that believe in you, and, and that's where you get your shot. Yeah, I, I wish I had my shot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one day. Um, but yeah. So you did the sci-fi, and then when did you do Mech uh, X4? Now, how did you get the, yeah. like Because I'm guessing the sci-fi thing pulled you to the Mech X4? No, so you know, the monster movie was more of a straight-up horror film. You know, mm-hmm. It was basically a bunch of people being eaten by giant men um, and then that led to um, a movie for Lionsgate um, that didn't go very well. That, um, that was a reboot of the Leprechaun franchise. Oh! And that movie was... Um, the dude from WWE. The mid- yeah. Not the mid- it was Dylan, yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, Hornswoggle, as he's known in, in uh, WWE. Yeah. Um, and that was, again, it was basically like a quick movie about a bunch of people running through the woods being eaten by mm. a leprechaun instead of a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. And that led to another horror film I did with uh, Legendary and, and Crackle, which turned out really well, called uh, Dead Rising, based on the um, really popular video game. Mm. And sort of, so I was basically kind of moving through doing yeah. horror, horror movies, um, always trying to push them into be a little bit more like adventure movies, because that was really what I loved mm. more. Um, and... The way that Mech X4 happened was, you know, over these years of those four or five years where I wasn't working, and then over these three or four years as I was making these movies, I was doing everything I could to keep in touch with every person I met in in Hollywood. Um, and I would, you know, like kept a big database of like every person I yeah. knew, um, and I would try and take them out for lunch once a year, and you know, just email them with each new thing that I was doing. And this one woman that worked at Warner Brothers that I had, I had met years earlier, I think I had taken her out for lunch for like six or seven years in a row. And we always hit it off and nothing ever came of it. And then eventually she was having lunch with someone at Disney and they were like, oh man, we have this show, but we need we have a pilot and we need someone who's in Vancouver, who's worked with kids, who knows visual effects, who's, who's who can make something look big even though they don't have a lot of money. And she goes, oh my God, I know the perfect person. <laughs> and she suggested my name. And uh, I got a call out of the blue when I was editing Dead Rising, mm-hmm. and they said, "Hi, we're from Disney Channel, and we we have this show, and we think you'd be perfect for it." Which was yeah. the first time that it ever happened. And I and I went in and pitched on it and got the job, and 
did the pilot, and that led to me becoming the producing director on the show. Mm-hmm. And I looked, I really lucked out there because the showrunner was a really cool collaborative guy, but he had come from the world of animation mm-hmm. um, and didn't know that much about live action. Yeah. Um, and so he did. He basically just sort of ran the show from the writers' room in LA. Well, I was sort of put in charge of the production of the actual show, which is mm-hmm. sort of a huge, you know, <laughs> we ended up doing yeah. something like 40, 40 episodes over two years that I was in charge of, um, which was just like so much fun building a whole, instead of directing a movie, you're now kind of, as a producing director, you're directing an entire series yeah. um, and working with tons of other directors, which was really cool. Um, and so that kind of gave me uh, a step into the TV world and and also a lot of contacts and resources that um, I ended up using for my for my indie film Freaks, which I did with Adam Stein, who I met on on the lot. Going back also to the Leprechaun thing, real quick, what was it like also taking an existing IP like the Leprechaun franchise and then rebooting it with Leprechaun's origins? Like, do you now is that pressure? Is that like, oh shit? <laughs> I mean, the original Leprechaun is like you know, classic and, you know, people dies. Sure. And then you're like, now I got to remake it or reboot it in a sense. Yeah. Well, I've, I've kind of done that twice in some ways because Dead Rising was basically yeah. a really popular video game with a, you know, big fan base. And, you know, De- um, Leprechaun was, was very unique in that um, it happened very quickly. They hired me like a month before we started shooting. Oh, wow. Um, and and what they wanted to do was, was pretty already set in stone. Like they knew they didn't, want it to be at all like the previous movies. They wanted it to be completely different and they wanted to make sort of a very straight up horror film. Like not because the, the Leprechaun previous movies are really great because they're kind of campy and funny and, mm-hmm. and they're sort of having fun with it. Whereas the um, WWE folks in Lionsgate really didn't want to take that approach. They wanted it to just be a, a straight up horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really didn't want it to look like the previous guys. So in a lot of ways that film sort of threw out everything that people loved about that franchise yeah. on purpose. And it was sort of up to me to kind of fi- figure out what is the new version of that going to be. And I was, you know, sort of naive, I guess, to what the fan base, they really weren't, didn't care about the fan base, a Lionsgate mm-hmm. and WWE in that case. And so it was to me to figure out what the new version was going to be. And I thought there was a cool opportunity to think of what is the, if there was sort of a, grounded creature-based version of where the leprechaun myth comes from, mm. what would that be? It would be sort of a small, scary, carnivorous creature, maybe that hunt that, that eats gold, maybe, or something. You know, mm. I, I came up with this mythology, um, but then met all sorts of resistance as I was making that movie at the studio level. Oh, wow. Every attempt I made to try and make it good and make it better was sort of met with resistance, and so unfortunately it, it didn't turn out too well. But was Dead Rising, on the other hand, I had a really, really supportive group of mm-hmm. executives and producers, and um, I was really, really, really wanted to do well to the fan base of, the, of that franchise. And um, I think, in some ways, maybe that movie had the opposite reaction, where the fans thought it was the best thing ever, and it never really found an audience outside of the fans. Oh wow! Uh, now, did you play the game at all before you started that film, or after, did you play it during or after? Yeah. So I had sort of a funny situation with that because my whole time growing up my mom would let me have a computer and I could mm-hmm. do whatever I wanted with my computer but she the only thing she ever drew a line on was like drugs and, and console video games <laughs> like I couldn't have a console video game which drove me nuts so growing up I never had one 
And then I was living in LA and I got the job to do Dead Rising. So I flew back up to Vancouver and I was staying with my mom. And the producer of the of it was a Vancouver guy who I'm close friends with. And so he gave me his Xbox yeah. to play all the different Dead Rising games. And so I, I walked into my mom's house with an Xbox <laughs> that he had given me. And I'm like, all right, mom, it's now, like, my job is to play this video game. And I'm being paid to make this movie. And so she sat there watching me play this video game. It was so much fun because, like, the games are really fun and interactive. Because yeah. you can, like, pick up literally anything in the world and use it to, to hit a zombie. Yeah. Um, and so as I was, it was so cool to, like, play the game for the first time. But all the games, but, mm. but knowing that I was going to be adapting this into a movie. So anytime something happened that was hilarious or unique, you know, like one of the things is you can like grab traffic cones and put them on zombies' heads. Yeah. Like the first time I did that, I thought it was so funny. And then it was so cool to write down, we got to put a traffic cone on a zombie's head like yeah. on a piece of paper and like just play through the games and each time thinking of ideas and then incorporating those into the movie. And the fans just, you know, every scene has so many little Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. The fans love that stuff. So it really came from a joy of playing the games. Yeah, did you also, like, because um, when you made that movie, I'm guessing, what, what year was that? Uh, what year did you make Dead Rising? Uh, I'm not sure. Probably around 2016, maybe. It, I mean, obviously, YouTube culture and YouTube reviewers and all that stuff. Were you Were yeah. you getting any, like, you know information or like you know reviews from them as well using that information to you know add that to the movie mostly mostly after i mean there were a lot of reviews of the movie on youtube afterwards yeah. um, most of them are super positive so that was really fun to watch um i did watch reviews of the of the games themselves oh not not reviews um, i'm sorry like more or less like you know them talking about uh maybe maybe i miss maybe i'm misunderstanding you but it was like using them at the lore and like talking about like right. things that they do to bring that into the movie as well as research. That's what I meant. Yeah, I mean, I looked at a lot of reviews of the game, and I looked, watched a lot of um, people, of, of sort of researched what people liked about the games to mm. make sure that that was, you know, the, that the core key elements were, were in it. You know, I think a lot of that was learning about the experience from Leprechaun, where they threw out everything that the fan base liked, mm. um, and so the movie was trashed. Um, you know, in this case, it was, it was sort of the opposite. It was finding everything that the fan base loved, and that I loved as well. Um, and incorporating that into the film. And the, the other cool thing about the film is it it takes place within the story canon of of the video games. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it takes place between video game three and video game four. Um, and so it's sort of, in that way, it's cool too for the fans because it sort of expands the story world rather than it just being an adaptation of a game, which you can't really do when there's 80 hours of content. Very true. It's just a story, a story that takes place between some of the events, yeah. um, which is which is really fun. That's cool. And then, when did you start writing Freaks? Or when did you start, like, you know, that whole process? Yeah. So, you know, Adam and I, like I said, Adam and I met on, on the lot. He had been having a separate career, but we had been best friends. And we were really struggling to figure out, like, how are we going to really make tr- really the stuff we'd want to make? Like, it's awesome that we're starting to get these jobs for hire. Um, but, you know, we want to make our project, which, and we had written lots of movies that had gotten bought or shelved or attached to movies that we got going that then they fired us and hired a bigger director. Mm. And so it was just like, we've got to make our own thing. And we heard this speech from Mark Duplass that's really famous now called The Cavalry's Not Coming mm. that he gave at South by Southwest, where he basically tells you exactly how to have a career in the film industry. So if anyone's listening and hasn't heard that speech, 
go listen to The Cavalry's Not Coming by Mark Duplass. And the first thing he really says is, everyone writes movies that they can't afford. Mm-hmm. And, it's, which, and what that means is you're writing a movie that you can't make unless someone else lets you make it. Whereas instead, if you write down everything you have access to right now in this, at this very moment, your uncle has a limo, your dad owns a, owns a warehouse, you know, your friend has a, has a restaurant. Like if you write down those things and make a movie with only those resources, then it's greenlit as soon as you're done writing the script in some ways mm-hmm. because you, you don't need anything you don't have. And so we um, went on a long walk. We were inspired by that. We wrote down our list and we started writing the movie Freaks, which originally was going to be starring me and Adam as the two male leads. And yeah. his kid was going to be going to be the kid in it. Um, and we were actually working on it before Mech Explore happened. Um, and we were almost about to make like the super, super, super low-budget version before Mech Explore happened. But then Mech Explore happened, and I hired Adam on to the show, and we did that for like a year and a half. Mm. And it ended up being really great, because that then meant after Mech Explore... We knew so many more people. We had more money, like ourselves, just to sustain ourselves as artists and invested into the film. And we had just the film was ten times better because of the resources we had, that and just contacts we had. Like for example, Mega Four was canceled right before we made it, so it was this huge hundred square foot um, warehouse full of all of the props and, and wardrobe and sets. And so we stole everything to make <laughs> freaks. Um, so like most of the Mega Four like stuff is in freaks. Um, and so there was this big gap between sort of when we first started working on it, and then we did Mech X4, then we came back and shot it um, after Mech X4, and then we went right into doing Kim Possible. And so um, the film sort of had this sort of five or six year lifespan, because um, mm. we made sort of two film, <laughs> a TV show and a film while we were also making it. Yeah. Um, and it became sort of really something powerful for us because it was something that we wrote really from our hearts that in the end we didn't have to act in it ourselves we were able to um raise money and had like you know bruce dern a two-time oscar nominee played the role i was supposed to play and Neil hirsch played adam's role and so it ended up becoming a bigger movie but um it was really always you know our film that Mm -hmm. we you know we produced it we wrote it we did the craft service we did the insurance certificates we did every every element of that movie yeah what, was there a lot of like pressure? I mean, doing all that, like, is it? Did, how do you feel the pressure at all? I mean, I know you're growing up on sets and all that stuff. You're doing, you, you know, the ins and outs of the the yeah. industry. But when you're producing and funding it yourself, basically, is there a lot? Yeah. Do you feel a lot? Did you feel that pressure then, or was it more or less? Yeah, oh, especially because so cool. like, <laughs> I mean, all the money we raised was from individuals, mm. so it wasn't like a company had invested in the movie. It was people we had convinced to give us their hard-earned money to make this movie. Um, so there's a huge amount of pressure just because you know these people have, in some cases, put a lot of money up, basically just believing in us. I remember I was walking down the street one day, and it just hit me. I'm like, we literally just like wrote a bunch of words on a bunch of paper, and now people are giving us hundreds of thousands of dollars because they believe in it. Like, that's just so crazy. Like, um, And... Uh, you know, it was one of those things where indie making a low-budget indie film is like the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life because at every stage, the world is trying to stop it from happening. Like mm-hmm. You don't have enough money. It's always falling apart. It's always on the verge of disaster. And yeah. You always just have to keep pushing forward and like figuring out how to 
you know, duct tape the canoe back together again. And, and every day we just sort of, uh, tried to just take the next step. And eventually, you know, there was so many things that just could have sank it that didn't luckily. Um, and we surrounded ourselves with a lot of, nobody wanted to help us produce it, but because anyone who produces a low budget indie never wants to do it again. Um, because they know how hard it is, but they were all willing to, to give us advice. And so we ended up having about five or six like producers that said, you know, call me anytime. And so we would call one of them a day. Um, and, and so, and it would, you know, cycle back around at the end of the week to the person we called on the Monday last week. Um, and with their advice, we were able to get through. I usually ask, I ask this question a lot to filmmakers on the show now. Um, what, what was the best day of set and what was the worst day of set? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, the best, I mean, maybe in some ways it was the same day, which was the last day. It was like just this impossible day mm-hmm. that was both, we had crew quitting like every few hours. We oh, jeez. Um, you know, props that, <laughs> like we were, one of the key props is like, these like shackles like you have in a jail cell mm-hmm. but we were two hours in the middle of nowhere in, in a gold mine like an abandoned gold mine outside of Vancouver <laughs> and the first shot is like a close up of these handcuffs and the props guy comes up and says you know I left them at home <laughs> and, um, and luckily Amanda Crew who is the lead actress um, she had the, this ingenious brainwave that they kind of looked like duct tape rolls. Mm-hmm. Like they were sort of the same shape and color. So in that shot in the movie, she literally has duct tape rolls around her hands and it's sort of moving quick enough that you can't tell. Um, but anyway, that day was, it was like this 14 hour day. It was super long. It was super hard. In, in the end, we, we got through it. And the way we got through it was with the people that were left. Uh, we're just doing it out of love and heart and wanting this movie done and the feeling of being done was just like super rewarding because we knew we had we had filmed something really special how many days did it take you to film total um we shot over 20 days uh which is probably more than a normal indie you know low budget indie would because Mm -hmm. we had a a kid as the lead actor so um you kind of have to like they can only work a certain amount of hours a day so that sort of spread out our schedule gotcha now um there's another question i had on top of that too what yeah, what is the average then for an indie film of that magnitude to shoot shoot wise? I think it depends on your budget and the, and like how many locations and stuff. I, I would say three weeks is probably mm. more normal, okay. like so fifteen days. Gotcha. Um, it just depends on you know I shot a three hundred thousand dollar movie for two months with a book. It's just because we had a crew of ten and it was sort of a found footage film where we could just run around with a camcorder. So yeah. it's you know you can always scale it to be anything that your budget allows now uh, another question I forgot to ask you too because freaks and then you're talking about Kim Possible let me ask you that because that's another IP that you that again <laughs> that's true <laughs> now I forgot about that yeah now that one how how was it in that working relationship because the Disney like you know take the same approach as you know uh, Capcom's with De- Dead Rising I think that's Capcom if I'm not mistaken like yeah Capcom yeah yeah yeah, so that one was, was really cool because so Kim Possible was this hit cartoon um, and it had been, I think, about 10 or 12 years since the cartoon had been on the air um, and they were looking to do a bigger budget sort of, you know, or I guess a medium budget, 
big budget for TV movie, but it was basically a medium budget movie. Yeah. Um, but the cool thing was the creators of the cartoon, the showrunners, um, were involved and had done a lot of work on the script, and, and they were right there with us. So it was really cool to, like, um, I was a little too old to have watched Kim Possible when it was on the air. Mm. Um, but so I, I wasn't that familiar with it. But the fun part was, you know, I watched like 90 episodes of this cartoon, became a huge fan of it because it is actually, actually really good, and yeah. really funny, and really smart. Um, and then you get to sit down with the showrunners who made those 90 episodes and geek out <laughs> with them about it and then and work on the script with the people that made that show, which mm. was really cool. Um, and then figure out what it means to adapt it because, you know, the show did come out 10 years earlier. So, like, the idea of, like, having a computer screen on a watch was, like, was like mind-blowing, you know, <laughs> when the cartoon came out and was no longer mind-blowing. Yeah. So, like, um, we had to do a lot to, like, kind of update it to modern day. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of fun with that because the show was always sort of had a, a smart sort of cheeky side to it that... Um, was really fun to play with. And, and for us, it was, you know, that was a 40-day shoot. So it was like, you know, uh, doing, instead of a fight scene being five hours, it was five days. Yeah. Um, with, hu- with huge stunt teams, and, you know, it was so much fun to to kind of just direct on such a bigger scale. Yeah. You know, going from a one well, <laughs> a tiny little, you know, indie film to this huge sort of Disney movie um, was was quite a difference and all we had to do was direct we didn't have to produce or do the craft Mm. services or anything obviously there's a lot of complexity that comes with doing a bigger thing and so it's it's sort of just as stressful but in different ways what is your directing style like what how do you are you more of a creative director in the sense of like you know with the camera and you know or or that's more of a technical i'm sorry like technical director with the camera being like you know focus on what the camera is doing or are you more of a you work with the actors and you really fine-tune their performance or are you the guy who's like i'm in between i know both strengths and weaknesses of of both those things yeah so i feel like i do all i sort of ambidextrous in that way but you know the other benefit i have is i code right now so since freaks uh i co-directed kim possible with adam as well and we and everything we're doing moving forward is together Mm -hmm. so the two of us um have a lot that's exactly in common we have the exact same sort of taste and and instincts but we also have a lot of different skills um that are that are unique and and we also um split up the duties even though we both so to answer your question like we both are great with actors and we're both at being really technical. Um, but sometimes it's really great when you're doing a scene to have one person who's right there with the actors while the other person is is back at the monitors being very technical because yeah. then you've got both covered. Because often when you do one, it's hard to focus on the other. Um, and and so we find that to be a real big benefit of being co-directing is you've got sort of, you can split up, but you also have got twice, twice the, the eyes on something. And when you hit a problem, you you have someone to really um, brainstorm with because sometimes being a director can be really lonely because yeah. um, especially when you get into bigger stuff because they all just sort of expect the director um, to know and you have to kind of pretend like you know everything even though you clearly don't <laughs> and so having another director to kind of bounce things off with you know makes that really easy and mm-hmm. and you know I have specific skills like my the visual effect skills I learned when I was doing indie stuff when I was really young come into play in mm-hmm. a huge way when I'm doing bigger stuff um and, and Adam is really good at sort of the instinctual side of of, um, 
of writing and, and working with actors where I'm sort of much more of a, a, a very like sort of logic based type yeah. thinker. Um, and so having both, you know, really complements each other. Now, when did you start thinking about Shotlister? Was that during Freaks? Was that before Freaks? Yeah, it was actually way back at the beginning. I built the very first prototype of Shotlister when I was doing Tasmanian Devils. <laughs> um, it was right. It was the same year that the iPad had just come out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, you know, and no one, you know, the iPhone was still relatively new. It had been out for a few years, mm-hmm. um, and I was, I had become someone who shotlisted a lot for my short films, and it was just sort of like shocked to learn that there was no standard for shot listing basically um everyone did it differently and, and really the standard was using excel yeah which is fine when you're doing a short film but i quickly started doing the math i'm like okay well if it's this many shots per page and this many pages have 1200 shots <laughs> like um, that's not going to work well in an excel file and then and then what people were doing was printing out printouts from Excel yeah. and going to set with this piece of paper, which of course, as soon as you get to set, your plan changes. Yeah. And you're scribbling all over this piece of paper and you're doing arithmetic in the corner to figure out like if you have enough time, how many shots can you get done in the next hour and like and like I'm terrible at math, just like you apparently. Yeah. And like I I was just like, there's gotta be a better way of doing this. And then at the time I, I bought I built a sort of little prototype um, a program called FileMaker, which is basically like a really fancy version of Excel. Mm-hmm. Um, and FileMaker had a way of, if you built it on FileMaker on your computer, you could open it in FileMaker on your iPad. Oh, wow. And so I built sort of a very rough version of it there. And when I was using it on Tasmanian Devils, everyone was like, wow, I mean, that's incredible. Like, mm-hmm. that's so powerful. And my mom, I was, again, I was sleeping on my mom's floor at the time. And she was like, well, that's, she recognized it being a TV producer. She's like, that seems really incredible. Like, why don't you make that into an app and yeah. like sell it? And I was like, well, I don't know how to program and I don't have any money to hire someone to program. And my mom was like, well, I've got some money. And so we basically went into business together um, and we uh, hired a company to, to build the very first version of the app. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, eight years ago, <laughs> which is like a hundred years in app, app world. Um, cause like stuff outdates so quickly. Um, and we just kind of kept building it, you know, a little bit better, a little bit better. And, um, it's been really amazing. It's really been ad- adopted by, um, filmmakers all over the world. It's yeah. crazy. You get emails from India and China and South America. And right now the, the Brazilian First ADs Guild has bought enough copies for every First AD in Brazil. And wow. Like, <laughs> just sort of like, um, it's so cool. Like, And uh, I actually just heard that like a huge director that's doing a big Netflix series right now just used it for the entire series. And like, you know, it's cool to see mm-hmm. it kind of going out into the world. It's really just a tool I built because I needed it. Yeah. Because um, it's it's really a magical app. Once you, once you start using it, I don't think you could ever go back to doing it the way other people do it because the ability to change your schedule effortlessly while you're shooting yeah. and have the app tell you how you're doing. Oh, right now you're an hour behind or you're, or you're an hour ahead or whatever. Giving you that foresight relieves so much of the stress on set because you, you make such smarter decisions of like, we need to get this, this, and this. I can lose this stuff, but this is important. And instead of it just being guesswork, yeah. um, 
you really know how you're doing, and it gives you that sort of uh, amazing 2020 vision to just make sure you get the most important stuff. Yeah, I wasn't a shotless guy until I was working on like an indie feature out here, and I was like, I need a, a shotless thing. I need something yeah. to like figure out shotless because I need to do that. I can't just like. Just get, I mean, I, I still kind of do where I kind of make it very basic and broad for myself in my shot list, and then I kind of go yeah. to set and kind of figure out other things as well, because sometimes like people don't really go location scouting in indie film right. world, I found out also, and, or they don't bring the DP, and it's like, oh, okay, um, I had no idea what this looks like, so I'm going off a whim. Um, yeah. So when, when I did that, it was just so easy like and so... Yeah, it was so easy and like so. You know, I, I had a learning curve for a second. So I was like, I think I messed up. I was always feeling like I messed up something. But then after I picked it up, I was like, oh shit, this is easy. And then I was gonna use it on another project but that fell through. And when I showed it to everyone else on that project, they were like, yeah, this is this is the bee's knees. So it, it yeah. yeah, I haven't used it recently because I haven't been on any projects. Been doing a lot of podcasting, and I work for the news, so we don't really need shot lists. Yeah. So, so it'd be really it'd be really weird if I just started doing shot lists at news and live shots. I'm like, can we just do this? Um, we're gonna go wide. We're gonna go tight. We're gonna do a a drone shot. Uh, that would be the well, best news ever. Yeah, I, I mean, she, I was trying to tell my one reporter, I'm like, can I, if I buy a steady cam and a, a cinema camera, I think we can pull off some pretty cool look lives. And he's like, yeah. He's like, <laughs> so just tell the news. What was that? He's like, just tell the news. No, he was actually really excited about it. He was like, he, he started like, when, when are you going to do this? I'm like, um, I don't know yet. <laughs> I just thought of an idea. Come down. Um, so what are you uh, working on now? I know we, I mentioned from that little uh, IMDb bio, you're working on stuff for Disney Plus and Universal Pictures. Uh, I, I'm guessing you have NDA, so I'm not going to really ask too much, but are they sh- just in general <laughs> – Shows or movies or both? Yeah, a bit of both. Um, we've got a show that um, is at Disney Plus. Uh, it's really cool because it's with Jim Henson. Oh wow! So they're doing all working with Jim Henson on all the creature stuff, which is really cool. Um, that one, uh, we've got uh, that project we're writing for Universal. We've got a bunch of other projects at a bunch of other places too. Mm. The tough thing is like off the success of Freaks which we wrote and directed and was really successful. Yeah. You know, it got into lots of theaters. It was in the top 10 on Netflix for like two and a half weeks. And, mm. um, and, it, and it's just a fun, cool movie that people have really enjoyed. Um, we got tons of jobs sort of setting up projects, setting up scripts, which is sort of the, I think is the dream. Like, oh my God, we sold a project to Universal Studios. Yeah. We, we have a film at Universal Studios, which is cool. And it is, and it's a huge honor to get paid to, to create something that you, you know, that's your idea. But at the same time, like all these projects like move so slowly and then if at all. <laughs> and so it's sort of like, it's this double edged sword where it's like, it's amazing. You've got all, we've got all these things that we've tried to sell and we've sold so many just because they're so slow to progress that you sort of want to set up many. Mm-hmm. Um, but the chances of any of them going is so low that it, it's still quite a struggle. Um, now it's not as much a financial struggle because at least you're being paid to work on stuff. Yeah. But the chances of ever getting to set are still really low, which is kind of sucky. Has it been? I'm guessing. I'm assuming. Has it been a lot slower because of this pandemic? Um, 
in some ways, yes, like we've had some things get delayed, but in other ways, no, because what the first thing that happened when the pandemic hit was everyone just put their energy into development hmm. um, because they knew they couldn't shoot. So, and, and a lot of time executives are split between the stuff that's currently shooting and the stuff that they're developing and nothing was shooting. So all their energy went to development. Yeah. Um, so in some ways that, that sped up and, and we ended up selling a few things during quarantine. Hmm. Um, over Zoom <laughs> because people were looking for stuff to buy which they couldn't shoot um, but it's definitely slowed down the, the shooting side of things yeah have, have you been on set since lately for I mean I guess well I don't know for the Disney Plus stuff or anything of that nature has it been um, going back to set yet or not yet I haven't um, a lot of my friends have a lot of my friends who shoot TV and TV movies and stuff have been back to set hmm. um but like I said, most of my stuff is in the feature world, and the feature world just moves so much slower. Um, um, trying to think of any other questions. Any oh, any updates for Shotlister? By the way, that's like any big yeah. updates coming along the pipeline. We do, we do. We have a huge update coming that we've been working on uh, for quite a while. That's our number one requested feature, um, which doesn't sound like a big feature, but it, it really is when you because it affects every part of the app, which is we're. Um, adding the ability to have um, episodes within the within the, the um, app, which basically allows you to have multiple scripts and multiple projects nice. that shoot on the same day, so that you can, when you're doing a TV show, you know the way the app was built before is you know you had scene one, scene two, scene three, um, but you might want to shoot scene one from episode one and scene one from episode two on the same day, mm-hmm. and so it was sort of there was no way of doing that. So we've built an entirely new way of kind of managing episodes within the app, nice. which um, for anyone who does web series or TV or any type of episodic work will be a huge, huge benefit. So yeah. that's coming very soon. Nice. I'm looking forward to that. I have a question. Could you – I know this might sound like a silly question or a silly <laughs> request in a sense, but is there a way – I don't know. I have, Again, maybe I, maybe there is. And I haven't gotten this far in, in shot list, my shot list or sure. life. Um, but is there a way to get the metadata onto like an editing software so we can see what the uh, like shots are to like find them like in that in that regard? Right. Is is there maybe yeah. there there isn't a totally straightforward way? Um, the you can we do have a feature that allows you to do like to circle takes while you're shooting and yeah. then you can export that as like a PDF that leads to help you know with your editing you can have sort of the sheet of like oh. Yeah. Take three was the best from from this shot. Um, we t- we have published sort of you know Shotlister has project files that are called SHL files, um, and we've we've made it public um, how the data is stored inside those files. Yeah. Um, it's in a, it's basically in an XML file, so that other companies can if they so choose import those. And a few companies have none of them have none of them are our editing programs. Mm. Um, but if someone if someone knew how XML works, they could uh, easily uh, take the metadata out and put it into any other type of editing software. We also sometimes get requests of people wanting the same type of thing but into Slate apps, like those apps that yeah, have yeah. the Slate information so that you don't have to put it in yourself. But yeah. um, honestly, not that many people request that type of stuff because in the end, people just like doing it manually. But, yeah. Was, um, I, I was thinking it is, of Avid. It is, it is technically possible. We just haven't... Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I was thinking of like what Avid does. I know like in the newest Avid or like uh, uh, recently updated Avid, they have that uh, screen, uh, 
script sync or something like that, where you can literally yeah. go, uh, you know, script by a page and figure out yeah. your shit and then. Or, so I was like, oh, maybe yeah, it'll way. show you what footage is, you know, what what shots this yeah. line is in. Yeah. Cool. Um, we're getting towards the end of the podcast, and I have two last questions for you. One is, if you'd like to give your social media, you could if sure. you'd like to. You're free to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you can check out Shotlister hmm. at Shotlister app on uh, you know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and just because you've listened this far through the episode, uh, anyone who's listening, uh, they can email chase the frame at shotlister.com and we'll give you a free copy of Shotlister. Awesome. Thank um, you. And then you can follow me at. Um, Zach Lepofsky on you know Instagram is mostly where I'm active these days. I've sort of moved off of Facebook, <laughs> so too much negative stuff going on there. So I've sort of just checked. I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter occasionally. And but at Zach Lepofsky. And the last question for you is: What is that last bit of like nugget that you want to give to the people that are listening to this show, who's listened this long? Like, you know, for anyone who's, like, you know, wants to get to that next level, wants to be a filmmaker, wants to really do it, and, like, you know, sometimes we're like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. Two things. One is, you always feel that way. Um, there's It's always a struggle. <laughs> so the good part of that is, if you're struggling, that means you're already doing it. Um, you know, a lot of people think that breaking through means that you get through this wall and suddenly there's just unicorns and money and creative freedom on the other side. Um, that isn't the case. It's, you're always having to prove yourself. You're always trying to fight to get work at every stage. So don't beat yourself up too much about the fact that you're doing that. You know, you're fighting to to get work now. And and then as far as how to how to get work and, and how to to feel like you're being productive, by far the biggest thing is just figure out stuff that you can make without other people's uh, approval. Even if that means shooting it with just a few people on the weekend in your house, like just by doing that, just by and you've probably already done it once or twice and felt like okay, I did that. I want to go to the next stage. You gotta just keep making stuff, and because each time you make something, it you meet new people, new people get inspired by you, and also every time I've gotten a job, it's come from someone I didn't know was looking for what I did, and the only reason they found out about me was because of something I did recently. Yeah. Kind of perked up on their radar somehow. Not in a way that I could have ever controlled. And so every time you make stuff, it sort of sends out a ripple into the universe uh, in ways that you are unaware of. You know, you put something up on YouTube, it may get 15 views, but maybe one of those views is someone who then hires you to do your first commercial or your first music video or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so the biggest thing is just keep making stuff and and only write stuff that you can actually make rather than, you know, writing a a hundred million dollar movie and you've only, and you've never made a film. Yeah. That's a lot of effort you're putting into something that isn't actually going to likely happen. Um, you know, write something that you can make. So, and, uh, the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. That, that is perfectly said, but I like to dream sometimes (laughs) and write the hundred million dollar movie. (laughs) (laughs) You can write it. It's just not going to get made. Yeah. There you go. I'll put it uh, in my shelf. Put it in your drawer. So for 20 years from now, when they go, hey, what's, what's, you got an idea? You can dust it <laughs> off. I had this perfect um, idea. It's $100 million. There yeah. you go. Uh, well, apparently, like, uh, I heard that the fifth element was a script that.
Besson wrote when he was a teenager. Yeah. And once once he became Luc Besson, he dusted it off, and and you know that's one of my favorite movies. So. You know what's funny? I never seen that movie. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. It's, it's one fun. of the best sci-fi movies ever made. My fiance said the same thing to me. Like she's like she mentioned yeah. the Fifth Element, and she was like, "You." I'm like, "Yeah, I never saw it." She was, "Are you are you kidding me?" Like you have all these movies, and it still stands up. It's still it's a good movie today as it was. How do you feel about Valerian, then? I, I didn't even make it all the way through that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but don't let that taint Fifth Element. Fifth Element is really great. All right, I'll definitely check it out. I know it's like always on TNT or like TBS, one of those like yeah. Turner stations. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking to you, getting to know you, and hearing your story. And you know, again, guys, thank you for listening. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Spotify, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, Anchor, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcast. You name it, we're probably on it. You've seen it somewhere. And I can't do this without my frame chasers. I'm just trying to bring knowledge to all you listeners out there. I hope you're getting some great, valuable information and learning something from it because we all have a story and we all go through things at the same time or at different times. And I hope the people that are on the show keep inspiring you to chase those frames. Again, Zach, it was a pleasure and it was so awesome to talk to you. And like, Absolutely. you know, I was really excited today. Like, I was like, I was super excited. <laughs> Again, 